Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, your host, and you're listening to episode 187 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10 Lunar Module Pilot Eugene Cernan. I flew in space three times, had a chance to walk around the world a couple times on Gemini 9. Uh, that was a pretty exciting time because that was the second time an American had ever been out in space, outside of a spacecraft. That, because I'm probably lucky I'm even back here to talk about it today. Went to the moon on Apollo 10. Uh, we were sort of the pathfinders for Apollo 11. We took the lunar lander, only second crew ever to go to the moon, and uh, we came close. We came down within about 47,000 feet. Had a few trials and tribulations on that flight as well. Uh, and uh, pa- painted that line in the sky for Apollo 11 and uh, for Neil Armstrong and his crew to follow. It wasn't quite that easy for him, but at least we made it a little easier. It might have been. Another big part, of, although I didn't fly this mission, of backing up Alan Shepard uh, on Apollo 14. Uh, just 10 years earlier, I was a young naval aviator, young lieutenant in the Navy on the West Coast, uh, just back from a couple cruises, and Alan Shepard was, uh, was headed into space now become obviously an American icon, but he was our answer to the uh, to the Soviets. He was uh, our answer to Sputnik, to Gagarin, and he was our first steps into space. And uh, I watched him like every other American did in, uh, in awe and indeed in envy as an aviator, knowing that by the time I was qualified to do that kind of thing, all the pioneering would be over. And lo and behold, uh, I found myself in the space program not too many years after that, and uh, within Within a period of 10 years, almost to the month, I was standing next to that same Alan Shepard the night before he went to the moon on Apollo 17 with the spotlight glistening off his 38-story uh, Saturn V. Uh, I was standing there, having already flown twice, walked in space, and gone to the moon, and Alan had a grand total of some 16 minutes in space from his first Mercury Redstone flight. Uh, but yet there I was. Ten years later, uh, as Alan Shepard's equal, and it took me those two flights, quite frankly, to bring him up to his level. But <laughs> things can change quickly in life. I ended up uh, uh, going to the moon and uh, got turned on an opportunity to walk on the moon in Apollo 16, uh, because somehow, and maybe it's that fighter pilot, attack pilot, pilot spirit in me. I, I, uh, I wanted my own command, the command I wasn't able to have because I chose to go on the astronaut program and, and leave my 
standard path, uh, career path in the Navy, and uh, I was lucky enough to to get the command of Apollo 17, and it turned out to be the last flight to the moon. We knew it would be before we left, and uh, lived on the moon in a valley surrounded by mountains on three sides that are higher than the Grand, Grand Canyon is deep. Found my own little Camelot for three days uh, with a geologist scientist who was my crewmate and a very worthy crewmate, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, an experience that uh, uh, in those years that uh, isn't comparable to anything you might imagine. And uh, when I stood on the surface of the moon and uh, and look back at the Earth. Stood on the surface of the moon in sunlight and look at the Earth surrounded by the blackest black that you can conceive in your mind. A paradox, but on the moon it's truth. And I could watch, look at the world from pole to pole and across oceans and continents. And, it, you know, we're, we're, we're in a bland environment of the moon where everything is gray. And there's the multicolored blues of the oceans and whites of the snow and the clouds. Watch it rotate on a mysterious axis you couldn't see but you knew must be there. Watch it move through the heavens, through this infinite blackness of time and space with purpose and with logic. I came to the conclusion it was just too beautiful to have happened by accident. There must be something we don't know. And I felt very privileged to be there at that moment in time and, and tried to gra grasp subconsciously or consciously everything I could out of that moment. That was Gene Cernan reflecting on his life experiences. This episode I'm continuing from last week the uh, introduction of the Apollo 10 crew. This episode, of course, will cover Gene Cernan. Now, I could not hope to cover Gene's life as well as his autobiography, The Last Man on the Moon, or the movie of the same title. But I did try to find some audio clips and info that some of you may not have heard. As I'm sure you know, Gene Cernan is a retired United States naval officer, naval aviator, electrical engineer, aeronautical engineer, fighter pilot, and NASA astronaut. He traveled into space three times as pilot of Gemini 9A in June 1966, as lunar module pilot of Apollo 10 in May 1969, and as commander of Apollo 17 in December 1972, the final Apollo lunar landing. Cernan also served as backup crew for Gemini 12, Apollo 7, and Apollo 14. But let's start at the beginning. Eugene A. Cernan was born in Chicago, Illinois, on March 14, 1934. His father was Slovak and his mother was Czechoslovakian. Cernan grew up in the suburbs of Bellwood and Maywood, Illinois. As a child, he was fascinated by the black and white movie tone newsreels that played in the cinemas during the Second World War. He loved the reports about brave U.S. pilots, and he knew he wanted to join their ranks. Here's Gene reflecting on his early life. I came from, from a family not different than anyone else in this room or in this country, quite frankly. Uh, spent a lot of time on a farm in Wisconsin. Learned a lot of lessons from my parents, uh, some of my teachers, and, and you know, was able to get an education. Had a dream 
And I hope this is an inspiration to young kids because I had a dream and I wanted to dream about flying airplanes off aircraft carriers. I mean, that's the only thing I wanted to do. I grew up in World War II and that's what I watched. That's what I wanted. Uh, committed myself to that dream, made it come true, and, and lo and behold, I found myself standing on the surface of the moon. But when Alan Shepard became the first American in space, Cernan decided he wanted to be an astronaut. He was selected in the third group by NASA to work on the Gemini and Apollo projects. In personal data, Cernan met his wife, Barbara, in 1959. The two were married in 1961 and had one child, Teresa. However, his first marriage ended in 1981. Cernan told CNN that his wife, Barbara, got tired of being Mrs. Astronaut. Here's what else Cernan said. What happened at home? My wife once said, if you think going to the moon is hard, you ought to try staying home. Think about that for a minute. In 1984, Cernan met Jan Nana, who became his second wife in 1987. They had three daughters. Cernan was well-liked by his co-workers, too. Flight director Gene Krantz wrote that Cernan was his favorite because of his carefree and jovial attitude and unabashed patriotism and his close personal relationship with the flight controllers. Astronaut Mike Collins wrote that Cernan was relaxed, jovial, and a pleasant companion. Now let's move on to Cernan's education. Like most astronauts, Cernan was a very well-educated man. He attended Proviso High School in Maywood, Illinois, and graduated in 1952. After high school, he entered Purdue University, where he became a member of the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering, in 1956 and was commissioned as a U.S. Navy officer through the Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps at Purdue. Cernan earned a Master's of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School at Monterey, California. Cernan received an honorary Doctorate of Law degree from Western State University College of Law in 1969, an honorary doctorate of engineering from Purdue University in 1970, and Drexel University in 1977. Now we'll move on to Cernan's flight experience. Gene entered flight training after he graduated from Purdue in 1958. He became a naval aviator flying FJ-4s and A-4 Skyhawk jets in attack squadron 126 and 112 at the Miramar, California Naval Air Station and subsequently attended the Naval Postgraduate School. Cernan logged more than 5,000 hours flying time with more than 4,800 hours in jet aircraft and over 200 jet aircraft carrier landings. Captain Cernan has logged 566 hours and 15 minutes 
in space, of which more than 73 hours were spent on the surface of the moon. Now, let's move on to his NASA experience. As I mentioned before, Captain Cernan was chosen among the third group of astronauts selected in October 1963 by NASA to participate in Projects Gemini and Apollo. On June 3, 1966, Cernan occupied the pilot seat alongside of command pilot Tom Stafford on the Gemini 9 mission. During this three-day flight, the spacecraft achieved a circular orbit of 161 statute miles. The crew used three different techniques to effect rendezvous with the previously launched augmented target docking adapter. And Cernan, the second American to walk in space, logged two hours and ten minutes outside the spacecraft in extravehicular activities. The flight ended after 72 hours and 20 minutes with a perfect re-entry and recovery as Gemini 9 landed within a mile and a half of the prime recovery ship USS Wasp and three-eighths of a mile from the predetermined target. Now I have a clip of Tom Stafford speaking on Gemini 9 at a tribute dinner for Gene Cernan. And so anyway, here was Gene. He was going to be the first one to walk completely around the world outside and fly this Air Force rocket pack with hydrogen peroxide thrusters and do all these efforts out there. Very unique. And it was really not a good way to simulate it. So he got out. He was huffing, puffing. And I was, you know, pressurized in there flying the Gemini spacecraft. He was torquing me all over. We continued on Went to the back, and he said his back was burning up. Well, it turns out his suit had ripped on the inside the insulation, the sun flux. Gave him a second-degree burn. And then the moment that the sun went down, boom, he fogged over, could not see him. And once he, he learned to do it blindfold, but once he got in the backpack, he, I only had one way of two-way communications. And, you know, we didn't have continuous coverage. Every now and then we might pick up a station for three to five minutes. And we're out over the Indian Ocean, see the Southern Cross coming up. And I was like, damn, it's lonely out here. Here's my buddy, 20 feet back. He's fogged over, can't see. One way of two-way communications, it is really lonely out here. And so I told him, you know, at least I had one-way transmission to hook back up to the other umbilical. And if the sun came up within 10 minutes, we'd call it quits because this, we couldn't go into the next darkness. Well, Gene was really, had really huffed and puffed and got back in. He describes it very well in his autobiography called The Spacewalk from Hell. I describe it to a slightly different, my viewpoint, but it was still tough. It was darn tough. And Gene did a heck of a job. We got him back in the spacecraft. He lost 10 and a half pounds in two hours and five minutes inside. And I don't recommend that for a weight loss program. But, uh, we did, but from every problem you have solutions, and from solutions you therefore go in to find better ways to do it. So he said we need tethers, we need the right foot restraints, all this, and so it was one heck of a time. Gino and I are looking at this rebuilding 
AMU engineering model, just thinking today that maybe it was a good thing he didn't fog over, we didn't, he didn't get cut loose in that because he had to do all these things there. And the backup thing was to grab a hold of the docking bar with one hand and try to unhook from that thing, which would have been a real fair. So anyway, Gino, you did a heck of a job there. And also, just one minor thing, on the splashdown, only about two weeks before the launch, we had second-guessed this new software pack. And we called the captain of the ship. They didn't have GPS. They had rudimentary Loran said, we'll be on the spot if you'll be there. And we, Gino was reading the nomographs. So I was flying the spacecraft through the reentry. We spliced down 0.38 nautical miles from the aim point. Or about eight football field links, which was the closest of any Gemini or Apollo mission. Gino, buddy, we've been through a lot together for 45 years plus. We both around in Gemini and also when we're around the moon, too. And also a few times on the ground, we had some times. Old friend, I've got something as one to do the. Watch the knees. Wonderful show today, and I saw something. I said, This would be appropriate for my great dear friend Gene Cernan. So, Gino, just remember that great mission we had 45 years ago. I've got, I bought this gift for you. Uh -oh. This was not part of the program. <laughs> <laughs> Will it break? Oh, I've never got a present from Tom Stafford in my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's soft. <laughs> Okay, let me just say, Tom, I really appreciate it. I know you you get my interest at heart. Oh, my God. It's a Buzz Aldrin. Rock and Hero t On Gene Cernan's second space flight, he was Lunar Module Pilot of Apollo 10 from May 18th through the 26th, 1969. Apollo 10 was the first comprehensive lunar orbital qualification and verification flight test of an Apollo lunar module. Cernan was accompanied on the 248,000 nautical mile sojourn to the moon by Thomas B. Stafford, spacecraft commander, and John Young, Command Module Pilot. In accomplishing all the objectives of this mission, Apollo 10 confirmed the operations performance, stability, and reliability of the Command and Service Module and Lunar Module configuration during Translunar Coast, Lunar Orbit Insertion, and Lunar Module Separation and Descent to within eight nautical miles of the lunar surface. The latter maneuver involved employing all but the final minutes of the technique prescribed for use in an actual lunar landing and allowed critical evaluations of lunar module propulsion systems and rendezvous of the landing radar devices in subsequent rendezvous and redocking maneuvers. In addition to demonstrating that man could navigate safely and accurately in the moon's gravitational fields, Apollo 10 photographed and mapped tentative landing sites for future missions. Here's Gene speaking on Apollo 10. Apollo 10. We tried to build uh, 
On eight, I've been going to the moon, and that was our objective, to go to the moon. And on nine, we flew the lunar module in Earth orbit to make sure it could fly. And so we took those two flights, took the lunar module, Snoopy and Charlie Brown, and went to the moon and tried to, to uh, make sure the lunar module would work in the thermal environment. Someone asked Neil yesterday how hot, how cold does it get on the moon? How hot or how cold do you want it to be? What is it? I don't know. Minus 150, plus 250, depends on your shadow or the shape, the lunar module had to perform. And, and if you see these, it looks like a rubble. <coughs> the skin is about that thick on a lunar module. A command module is like one of these, these, these things we rode around on yesterday. What do you call them? Rhinos and what? No, that's the rhino. What's the other one? The MRAP. 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 But the lunar module was made out of out of sheets of titanium and aluminum that are about that thick. It's a totally didn't have to fight the environment, didn't have to be aerodynamic. We could strap anything we wanted to the sides. Uh, we talked about 17, but we strapped a few other things to it later. But this all had to be checked out. Did it work communications-wise? Could we talk to the ground independently? Could they track two vehicles? Uh, could we talk to each other? Could we rendezvous around the moon? Why is that different around the moon and around the Earth? The dynamics are different. We're, we're involved in, in a different gravity environment around it. And, and those, all those things that have been checked out, fortunately, most all of them worked well. We, uh, we, I, I guess going back, and Neil would deny this to the day he dies, but our real, at least as a crew of Apollo 10 thought, was to paint that line in the sky so that two months later, Neil wouldn't get lost. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether it worked, but he found the moon. And we left, we left the hard part, quite frankly. We went down to 47,000 feet a couple times to photographs of his landing site. Obviously, Mr. Boulders he's going to talk about a little later. Uh, and, and checked out everything. It all worked out well. But as, as it will have it, every once in a while, as good as we are, as you are, you might make a mistake. Uh, you practice do everything the way it's supposed to be done. You train in simulators for every possible contingency or emergency. And yet, if it doesn't happen by itself, the crew will make it happen, and that's what happened in our flight. Because between Tom Stafford and myself, we were we were simulating the staging on the surface of the moon that Neil would have to would have to work, and uh, we had a guidance switch in the wrong position. We went part of my expression, but ass over tea kettle. Uh, it, several times the lunar horizon went down this way through a window and that way through a window, and because it was a basically a test flight in preparing for the landing, we had we were on box open mic. Not only did Mission Control hear, but the whole world. This was the beginning of the media being able to hear live what was going on up there. Live, yeah. <laughs> live, live. And you know, we took color television too for the first time and won an Emmy for taking a picture of that Earth that, that you took a picture of, we put it on television. Anyway, so Tom Stafford, being an outstanding uh, Air Force pilot, that was hard to say. <laughs> remember, they were all naval aviators, just remember that. Yeah, I was able to take control manually, and we, we docked it, went on, and through the rest of the mission. But during that open box, when it was it happened so quick, and I just said to Tom, golly, what the heck happened? 
or words to that effect. <laughs> now, Tom Stafford is from Oklahoma. Anyone from Oklahoma? You mumble? I've met him. You met Tom. Did you understand what he said? He was speaking English now. <laughs> I know. Well, you did understand. Well, Tom mumbles. And by the way, Tom flew the Apollo Soviet flight and learned to speak Russian. I would love to understand Russian and see what he sounded like in Russian. Tom mumbles. And it's all Tohomsky. And, and, and I know what he said, but no one else understood what he said. So if you think Golly Gee Whiz was bad, you should have heard what he said. And there's only one person who really knows at this point time. Anyway, we ended up coming home, I think it was eight day, eight day flight. Uh, I won't say it was routine from there on because I don't care how many times it's done. If you're doing it, it's always a person. And it was a great experience and one of the most significant memories of that flight and my flight that followed was to be what Jim talked about, just to be out there quarter million miles away and look back home, look at your identity with reality and try and cope it all and try and put it all together and realize where you are at that moment in space and time and history. It's just absolutely overpowering experience. Aside from the other reason we so that's Apollo 10. Cernan made his third space flight as spacecraft commander of Apollo 17. I'm not going to cover Gene's experience on Apollo 17 now. It will be in a later episode. In 1976, Cernan retired from both the Navy and from NASA and went into private business. Starting January 26, 1987, Cernan was a contributor to ABC News and its Good Morning America show for its weekly breakthrough segment, a segment on health, science, and medicine. In 1999, he published his memoir, The Last Man on the Moon, with co-author David A. Davis, covering his naval and NASA career. On May 13, 2010, Cernan and Neil Armstrong testified before the U.S. Congress in opposition to President Barack Obama's cancellation of the Constellation Program, initiated during the Bush administration as part of the vision for space exploration to return humans to the moon and later Mars. In 2014, Cernan appeared in the documentary, The Last Man on the Moon, made by British filmmaker Mark Craig. The film, Nine Years in the Making, is based on Cernan's 1999 memoir of the same title. Cernan received many special honors during his career. I will name just a few of them. He was awarded two NASA Distinguished Service Medals, the NASA Exceptional Service Medal, the JSC Superior Achievement Award, two Navy Distinguished Service Medals, the Navy Astronaut Wings, the Navy Distinguished Flying Cross, and he was inducted into the U.S. Space Hall of Fame. Now I have a couple clips to play to wind things up. First, this comes from 2011, Someone asked Gene how he would like space exploration to continue. Let's get on with something that excites people. 
And, okay. and, and going back to the moon is, I'm not saying it's just saying to excite people. I'm telling you there, there's a, for no other reason, education may be the overriding reason. The stimulus to, to, to education may be the reason to go back. Plus, you know, who knows? Is it water on Mars? Is Mars look today like we looked on this planet a million jillion years ago? Is it what today like this planet may look in a jillion years in the future? We don't know. No, and it's... You know, you, you've got the, the best, most versatile computer in the world sits right here, and we got to make use of it. Just sending robots is just not good enough. In the final clip, Gene expresses his thanks. But I tell you, I stand here uh, very humbly thanking, uh, thanking the people in this, in this nation of ours who believed in themselves, who, when Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon, uh, didn't believe it couldn't be done, although he was asking us at that time to do what most people thought was impossible, because it's those people who gave me a chance to share with you and hopefully a lot more people uh, some of my feelings and thoughts about what I think, not my flight, but the entire program of what I think is perhaps one of the greatest human endeavors in the history of mankind. And from a selfish point of view, I now have five grandchildren, two more, and who knows after that on the way. And they're all too young to understand that that big white thing up there in the sky is anything other than Poppy's moon. Don't really know how far away it is, what it means, what it meant for me to go there. Someday, someday, I want them and their children to understand uh, the commitment it took by a lot of people and the role that their Poppy played in uh, perhaps one of the greatest adventures in the history of modern mankind. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.